describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. everyone out there welcome good morning good afternoon good evening my uh rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated so uh welcome happy 2021 dan i'm james i'm dan happy to see you james it is good to be seen again hello to everyone out there uh so we are where are we from today dan not the abyss which is, We've decided we're not in the abyss because 2021 is so much better than 2020. So, but, yeah. But, but here's the rub. We are in the abyss. Grog line. We are in the abyss, and we're just pretending we're not. Oh, so, I see. I so like we're going to imagine, as we're sitting in the abyss, we're going to imagine that we are at the gaping goose in the village of Long Bottom Down. Nice. Uh, in Starstone. So, yeah. I like that. That's good. Delusional. Yeah, well, uh, that's that is that's what we're good for. So, yes, we're back, baby. That's exactly right. The you know, the Chamberlain <laughs> is back. We're doing. Oh, they're commenting on your beard. They like that you. You know, the only thing you you should have wore what you needed was a a hoodie, so you could look like the Unabomber. That would be. <laughs> that's right. In a shed. Uh, well, it's just, you know, it's the year of the dwarf, so that's what I'm going. Oh, for. it is. It is the year of the dwarf. I didn't have the. Uh, uh, do you have the 1981 calendar? I do not. You can't find those things. The Day of the Dragon? You can, yeah, the Day of the Dragon. You find, no, you can't find that. You know, usually you think that you can find anything on eBay, obviously, at a very high price. But right. you can't even find Days of the Dragon. Nope. Well, that's not good. So we've got, I know we've, we've been gone for a month. And again, for all those who are worried for me, uh, uh, you know, fortunately, the COVID bug did get into our house. But... Uh, Everyone is fine. Uh, I I fortunately did not get it, and which means, unfortunately, like most of us, we still have to worry about that. But we are oh tribute to Go Delicious. That's what uh, someone put down. I think that's very good. That your oh, beard is beard. It, took me, to, it took me a second. So I'd like you to put red dye yes. in there. A little bit of blood. Yeah, a little bit of blood in there next time. That's <laughs> my tribute to Go Delicious. That would be great. So uh, again, thank you to everyone. But we are we're doing okay. So. I think we got to start off with our big announcement, correct? Which is, uh, so why don't you announce uh, what we can officially say? We are hereby officially announcing that GrogCon will take place October 15th through the 17th, 2021. Uh, We, of course, are part of the Crucible Convention. I don't know why I say of course. We are 
happy and fortunate enough to be part of the Crucible Convention, and that's the dates that Craig Russell has selected. That's traditionally when it occurs in October. There's talk about it being in April. I think Craig uh, is making the absolute right decision uh, of having it in October because I think we all feel quite confident that it will happen, whereas April, we weren't so sure, right? It seemed probably 50-50. At, at best. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, if it doesn't happen in October, we, that means we're eating out of garbage cans and we live in a hellscape at that point. That's that's my guess. Yeah, so, that, so that's, the, that's basically the test. If GrogCon happens, things are fine. If GrogCon doesn't happen, it's the end of the world. Civilization is over. We, we are not playing D&D. We're playing Gamma World or something like that, some post-apocalyptic... Uh, game like that, which I guess we should have done that when uh, during the pandemic. I know a lot of people were playing post-apocalyptic mm. games during this time to kind of, just because you didn't get enough death and destruction on the news that you would want to go and play four hours of it with your character. So right. anyway, yeah, so October 15th through the 17th, um, we are working on some very special guests. Uh, so book your, uh, start penciling that down if you are able to make it that would be great if you are a certain tier level patron or higher your uh, admission your base level admission is on us so we would love to see you i know many of our folks are around the world and that's problematic but if you could make it we would love to have you so you can send uh if you have any questions you can we're going to post update the website in the next week or so um if you have any immediate questions, you can send it to info at grogcon.com, and we'll be happy to help you. But we can announce those dates 15th through the 17th. So, Dan, why don't you introduce our guest? We should have to guess, right, just by oh, we have to, looking. Well, I did announce on Twitter and Discord who we are doing. But go ahead. Uh, who do you think this is behind the, the Make This Model Lost Temple uh, book with the hat on? Well, if you guessed Harold Johnson, you would be... Correct. So, uh, and and here, what I saw on the internets is someone said Harold is said to be the TSR employee with the longest tenure. Do you? Uh, believe that? that is correct. That is correct. What, and and how long would that tenure have been? Twenty-one years. Okay. So, awesome. So you weren't part of the purge, apparently. Um, I was mm, there. <laughs> okay, well, sounds like we got. Sounds like we've got to follow up with that. Uh, but start with the mask. You got to see the mask, right? I'll take it off. But I thought I should wear it. This is an official Dungeons and Dragons face yeah, mask. D &D it is D and D. D Adventures Away. Stay at, play at home. Wow. So where did you get that from, Harold? Oh, uh, friend. But nice. it was a Kickstarter. Uh, oh. Actually, uh, my uh, business partner in my bookstore, uh, Wendy uh, uh, Lord, actually got it for me. Very cool. Very cool. Well, so thank you. That's awesome. So much for being on the show. Uh, we've got a, a lot to talk about. We always like going way, way back when. So <laughs> can, can you take – I know you went to Gen Con in 1976 – that's can, correct. Can you take us even before that? So how do you get into role-playing games? Okay. Uh, I, I went to Northwestern in 1975. And, uh, and the winter of 1975, my parents had, my father was a 
professor. And he decided he was going to go on an adventure of his own and take the family with him. He invited me to quit school and go with him where he was going to go to uh, teach at the University of Kabul in Afghanistan. Wow. And I said, uh, no. <laughs> so I went to Northwestern. Uh, and uh, while I was there, uh, I went home to Nebraska where my dad was based. And uh, I encountered some of my high school buddies and they said, we got this great new game you got to play. And I said, okay, let's see what it is. And it was this game called Dungeons and Dragons, the original OE. And uh, we did not have an actual copy of the rules. We had a photocopy of the rules. No, no, no. We had a photocopy of a photocopy. Wait, wait, wait. We had a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of the rules. And my first official copy was a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of the rules, which was very gray. Did, did, did Gary that, that was my first version. Did, did Gary know that – did you ever tell him that you used the photocopy version? And if so, was he angry with you? Uh, uh, no, Gary loved me. Gary thought the world of, no, of course I didn't tell him. Were you that People are photocopying, right? Yeah, right. So when I did, when I did join TSR, one of my first projects after the Dungeon Masters guy was, uh, the character record sheets. And if you remember those character record sheets, they're done on Astrobrite paper. So they were orange, uh, goldenrod, and a blue. And they were all, they would turn gray if you photocopied them. So you should use the originals, obviously, right? Okay, so anyway, I go home, I play the game. I have no idea what the rules are, and uh, but I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm at this time a professional performer from uh, fourth grade to about the age of 22, I made my money performing on stage or doing voices, uh, uh, voice uh, talents for radio commercials, that sort of thing. And I was also a professional puppeteer. And I said, okay, uh, I can do this. This is inventing a story. This will be fun. And I played the first two games and it was great. And then we said, we're going to do an all nighter. And we got together for an all nighter. And I went to our props uh, set. And I came back with old treasure chests and bags and rubber snakes and spiders and needles. And uh, we had uh, hard candy for gems and uh, vanilla wafers for gold coins. So we could do all this. We were going to play all night, all night. And then at nine o'clock in the evening, our referee got up and said, I'm done. I'm going home. And everybody went, what? what? How is nine at night all night? So we sat around for a while and he said, what do we do? What do we do? Nobody's got a, a campaign or a dungeon. This was back in the days of dungeon crawls. And I said, well, I don't know the rules, but I can tell a story. I can tell a story off the top of my head. If somebody will run the battles when we get to a battle, I will run the game. So that night, uh, we played till 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, and I never got to play again. <laughs> I was the referee from that point on. So you were making 
fly. Okay. You're making it up on the fly then. So you're basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, your... I, I've never actually thought that I'm inventing the stories. I think I'm like an archaeologist. I'm translating the stories from ancient script. I'm telling the story that has been passed on from generation to generation. So those stories, people will say, you know, that's a great story. You should write it. I, I don't have time. You want to write it? Just give me credit for it. But but it's such a great story, and a great story only comes around once in a while. And, no, 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 no. I have tons of stories up here. Not a problem. Now, had, had you been a fan of fantasy literature, or how did you, what drew you to it? Your friends, when they said, come play this game, why did they grab you to come play this game? Well, uh, fantasy literature included science fiction. And so, yes, indeed, I, I was a uh, Trekker, not a Trekkie, a Star Trekker. We had a, a science club called STFCL Lemiticus, Star Trek Fan Club Lemiticus, which was a play on Lemniscate, which is the infinity sign. We were a bunch of nerds, and somebody took the test and said, well, I couldn't remember what the name of that was, so I called it a Lemiticus. And we all laughed at him and said, that's a Lemniscate, you idiot. <laughs> so we had a... Uh, Star Trek fan club, but it was really an excuse to play games. And we used to invent our own games to play on large calculators because in those days you didn't have Atari, you didn't have um, Sega. What we were doing was we were using uh, like scientific calculators at that time. And we would, we had a game that was a uh, ship to ship combat and you had to figure out what the length of the hypotenuse was for a shot across the bow of the ship. And depending on how close you got, how many zeros you got in the calculation was how many hits you did to the ship. Okay. Wow. And, and how did you, but you were at Northwestern at the time, or you said you were just back in Nebraska. Right? I, I came back from Nebraska. I was there for the summer. Uh, and then I, and that's where I learned the game. Then I came back to Northwestern. And at Northwestern, I started to try and recruit players. At that time, I did not know of the existence of the North Shore General Staff, which was the game club at Northwestern. Uh, so I participated in a 350-man class called, um, what was it called? Stein. Science fiction literature. We had Frank Herbert came and lectured to us oh. before Dune was made. Um, and I sat in the front row with my tape recorder, my little cassettes, so I could tape all of the classes. And I started talking to the people beside me till I recruited my first gamers, my first players. So then you, so you were able to start then a D&D group at Northwestern? I did. I started a D&D group. We played D&D. We played uh, Chivalry and Sorcery from uh, Fantasy Games Unlimited. Very complex game. Uh, average battle could take two to three hours. And when you then looked at the amount of game time that elapsed, it would have been 10 seconds. So it was a wow. complex game. Um, but we liked, we, we were nerds. We, we played with numbers all the time. 
And I feel like there was a really there was a big Chicago gaming community at that time. I feel like other guests we've had. I think wasn't Jody Lynn Nye. I think was at Loyola Chicago, yep. and 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 it was Bill Fawcett. I think may have been in CTAIW. Yep, Chicago Tabletop uh, uh, Illinois Wargamers. Yep, CTAIW. And then and so then you make so not long thereafter you learn about Gen Con, right? Yes, actually, in uh, I played the year, and we played lots of different games. And then they said, do you want to go to Gen Con? I said, well, Gen Con, that's in Wisconsin somewhere, and I don't have a car. I said, well, we're carpool, but it's just across the border. It's not, and I said, okay. Uh, so I got what little money I had. Northwestern's not cheap, and I was paying for it myself. And uh, we drove up there, and on the way, they said, what are you going to play? What are you going to play? I don't know. What, you know we're going to sign up for the AD&D Open, the very first one ever uh, ran. Um, we had a team of five. But the first game that we could play in was Kingmaker, and I didn't know the rules. So they decided to try and tell me the rules as we're driving up to Milwaukee. Well, not Milwaukee, Lake Street. Oh, I love Needless to say, it was three rounds. I had the exact same score on the first and second rounds. And on the third round, I did better. And I was the first runner-up if they didn't all show. But they all showed. Did it, didn't you complain about the D&D tournament? Is it... It, was, it was very annoying. Um, Bob Blake, who was the organizer... Um, Bob had determined that he wanted to be give everybody exactly the same chances. So you did not get to roll many dice. You would say, I'm rolling dice, and he would look at a pre-generated <laughs> every time somebody, yeah, every time somebody said, I'm rolling uh, for healing, it was, okay, you get three points back. <laughs> it was always in that order. But what happened was when we showed up with a team of five, nobody else had. And he said, no teams are allowed. There's five uh, people in the game. And so they broke us up into five different groups. And I wound up not knowing anybody. And we took different characters. I took a um, cleric because I could be a warrior and I could cast spells and I could heal myself. <laughs> and... Uh, Everybody else picked the non-controversial, hard-to-run figures, leaving a 10-year-old boy, maybe he was older than that, to run our mage. Needless to say, he mostly stood around and looked at things, but did not cast a spell. So we all died horribly. Mm. And, and didn't they suggest to you that you, 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 you complained? About, I did. About it. And I then, went to the organizer, uh, Neil Topolinicki. I told him how bad it was. Uh, he said, can you do better? Do you think you can do better? I said, yeah, I know I can do better. And he said, you want to run a t uh, game? And I thought, well, I shot up my mouth. I should, I should step up to the plate. So I said, okay, okay, I'll run a game next year. He said, no, no, not next year, now. You need to run it now. We have a lot of players, and we don't have the events. So if you will agree to run a game, a 
Dungeons & Dragons game. We will get you players. We will get you prizes. We will get you a location. The only location they had left when they picked this was the center of the convention in Horticulture Hall, which was on a hill. And we, I said, give me the night to think about a scenario. Usually it would, it would come down to, I'd go up to a show and they'd say, what are you going to run? I'm not going to run anything. I'm here to play. No, no. What are you going to run? I am here to play the game. Look, we told everybody you're the best referee. You need to run something. Give me half an hour. I'll come up with something. And so I had asked them for some time, and we ran our first event. Uh, the uh, Myself uh, and two other referees, um, and uh, Dave White was one. I can't remember who the other one was. Uh, and we called it the Blood Cup of Noth, my invention. Sounds good. Yeah, it's um, dynamic. So, what, And how did it go? Uh, it was frustrating. We did a round-robin tag team event. Uh, every referee tagged in and tagged out. Uh, Dave White decided he was going to be an X-Factor and so while we were trying to run the adventure, he would pull people away from the table and do something to the character without consulting with the main referees. And <laughs> then we would come back. Oh, and, no. and it, it wasn't working well. And we got towards the end of the show because we were doing this on Sunday. So we had run, I don't know, since 10. And the show ended at 4. And... In those days, I believed that if you had paid to play, you should have the entire roller coaster ride. You should complete your adventure. Nowadays, I realize that sometimes that's unrealistic. But in this case, I wanted to finish the adventure for them. So I said, I can do this. If you guys will shut up and let me run it, just step aside. I will get there. And they said, okay, fine. I said, okay, where's the final encounter? They pointed to it on the map. Right there, they said. And I went, okay. The next door, which uh, was a door to a corridor that the heroes opened, I had flooded the corridor with a river. And so they took the huge door off, made it into a raft, threw it on the river, floated down the river right to the final encounter. So we got them at the final encounter, which was a giant uh, idol. I was transparent, and there was like a little imp inside manipulating it. And inside the imp was the blood cup of not. So, and did they get it? They get it? Well, we yes, actually they did. It, it, I'm I'm a very animated uh, referee. I tend to jump around. I can point to people. I try and include everybody at the table. And so I'm doing this and. The show is over. Everybody's sitting watching us because we are the last event going. And I am trying to get them to say the right thing and make the right roll so they can cap, uh, catch the imp and retrieve the blood cup. And uh, we finally get it. <laughs> Somebody does. And I go, and Everybody claps and we go home. Awesome. Very. That was my first show. 
Very epic. And and what can you tell us? So, you know, for people like us, you know, when we played in the 80s and, you know, we were in Florida and James was in New York, Gen Con was just a dream. So to hear stories of Gen Con is very interesting to us. I mean, could you just describe what it was like? I mean, is Gary walking around? I mean, did, 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 did you see Gary at, at Gen Con? I, you know, I didn't know who Gary was initially. Uh, about 12 years ago, I may have shared this with you. I always thought that I sold myself to the company, that I was a nobody when I went to uh, interview for a position as uh, a designer for them. And uh, about 12 years ago, I realized that those people sitting on the hillside included Jeff Perrin, uh, co-author with Gary on many things, and Gary Gygax. And then when they did small uh, conventions during the year, Fall Revels, uh, Winter Fantasy, I would go up, I'd be recruited to do a game, I'd make it up spur of the moment, uh, I would be the last thing running on Sunday, we'd go Saturday, Sunday, and they would be sitting by the fireplace in the American Legion Hall with me refing. So it, now in retrospect, I realized that when I walked into Gary's office, he already knew who I was. Hmm. I just didn't think he did. I, who am I? I was some guy from Northwestern, right? Very interesting. It's, and so ultimately, it's a it's an advertisement in Dragon Magazine, right? Which I think for many many of the, of the people we've had on the show, that's how they got the job. They they see an ad, right. and and you, and you responded to an ad, correct? I I did actually. I did not know the ad existed. I had gone, uh, my grandfather had died that year. Mm. And my grandfather is, uh, was a Campbell, Richard Campbell. Uh, Richard Campbell, by the way, uh, is heir to the uh, Duke of Argyle. He was actually offered the dukedom. So I am in the Royal Blue Book as the grandson of the Duke of Argyle. Wow. But he turned it down because he would have had to go back to Scotland and he didn't want to go there and leave the family. Anyway, um, he had passed away that year, and we decided we would go to the homeland, which is Nova Scotia. So I had traveled off to Nova Scotia that summer, and I wanted to get back to Gen Con. So I took a bus ride two and a half days from New Brunswick all the way to uh, Gen Con. Uh, and uh, when I was there, somebody said to me, oh, did you know they're hiring an editor? They're looking for an editor. And I said, no, well, how do you... It was in the July uh, Dragon Magazine. Okay. So after the show, I went home and I put together a portfolio of things that I had designed for myself for my own campaign. And I called them up and I talked to Mike Carr, the, who later became general manager. He was head of publishing. Uh, and I said... Well, you probably already hired somebody, but you're not going to know what my skills are if you don't give me an interview. And he said, no, no, come on up. And I went, okay. Hung up and thought, I don't have a car. I, I live in Chicago. I don't have a car. So I took the train to Milwaukee and the Owl, Wisconsin uh, coach, down to Lake Geneva, and then I walked all around Lake Geneva 
until the interview took place. And then I walked around looking for a place to live if I did get the job. I did not get the job. They had hired somebody, but they said, well, we're all, we're hiring right now. There may be another position opening. So it was because of an ad, but I did not see the ad. I got so how do you ultimately get hired then? If it doesn't happen that time, were you kind of annoyed that you got, I guess you wouldn't be annoyed that you got invited for an interview, even though there's no job because it sowed the seeds for the job. Right. right. Well, actually, I have a degree in biology. Uh, that's, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And uh, when I graduated from uh, Northwestern in 77, I didn't have any real job prospects. I had a union job parking cars. And I was pretty disappointed when I started looking. Nobody wanted to hire a biologist with just a bachelor. You needed a doctorate. I didn't have any money left. And I was so disappointed and then a little depressed. Uh, I thought, I need to do something to give myself some encouragement. And when I heard about the job, I thought, you know what? At this point, I'm already a published playwright. I've written, I, I was, uh, ran several writers' clubs, did our own publications of magazines. And I said, okay, so I can claim to be a writer, and I'm a good copy editor, so I will try and sell them on the concept that they need to hire me. And once they offer me the job, I will say, you know, thank you very much, but I'm a scientist. And so this is great that you've offered me a job, but I don't think it's for me. And that was my plan all the way up to even after I was offered the job as a lead designer. I, it was my plan to now say, okay, thank you, but no thank you. I'm not going to do this. Well, let me get this straight. You're being interviewed for a job, and they don't have an opening. And your plan right. is if they offer you the job, you're not taking it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Continue. <laughs> I to make sure I understood that. Okay. But that's, okay. that's the end of the story, I'm assuming. Yes. <laughs> the story? The start. In, in, uh, in the fall, around October, they have... Uh, fall Rebel. So I go up to this mini convention in Lake Geneva, and I find out that they are now looking for a lead writer because Gary wants to run the company, and he wants somebody to take over the lead on Dungeons & Dragons. The only person who has written at this time for Dungeons & Dragons Adventures is Gary. We know that uh, Rob Kunst had written for uh, one of the uh, books, Rob and Terry Kunst, uh, did a Greyhawk, Dave Arneson helped with uh, Blackmore, uh, but nobody had actually written adventures but Gary. So he decided he wanted to have a lead author, and he would then step away from that. I heard about the job. I called Mike Carr when I got home and said, Mike, what do you think? And he said, sure, we'll entertain you as a uh, candidate. We've got a test for you to take. And he gave me a hundred questions on history. They were questions such as uh, Count, Duke, Earl, Marquis, Viscount, um, put them, Prince, put them in order. 
of uh, high in the hierarchy to low. And a lot of questions about that, about wars and so on. Now, I had a minor in history, and uh, I mostly, with my minor in history, took history of warfare. So it was a good thing to be questioned about it. And also, uh, it's kind of a bizarre history minor. It's history of ancient Near Eastern religions. So Hittite, Akkadian, Sumerian, Babylonian, uh, Canaanite, uh, Zoroaster, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and just for fun, of course, Norse mythology. All of these being mythologies that I could use to inspire myself for fantasy. So I said, well, this is neat. So 100 questions. We didn't have computers. We didn't have the Internet. But at Northwestern, we have Love's Library, and it's a huge library. And I have a take-home test. Right. So cool. I just go to library and research the answers, and I can come up with anything I don't know. Uh, and then the other thing was you had to write 25 pages of a sample adventure. And so I, uh, I started working on something. And just the other day, we found my original notes. Uh, my, my collection has currently been put with Treasure Trove in Omaha, Nebraska, and they're going to start auctioning it off. And uh, this unfinished manuscript was about a frost giant's castle. It was the only kind of adventure of its kind at the day. I don't think anybody's ever done anything like it. It was a living uh, castle. Depending on the time of day, the occupants wandered around and could be found in different locations. And the story was separate in a, uh, a layer on top of everything else. I always look, thought about things in computer parlance and in graphic parlance. So I would do it in layers and in pieces. Um, I spent about two months working on it and didn't get it finished and went up to Winter Fantasy. And while I'm at Winter Fantasy, I asked a 13-year-old that works in the uh, dungeon hobby shop, had they hired somebody? And they said, yes, somebody had already been hired. Uh, the gentleman was Lawrence Schick, who actually was hired to do Star Frontiers. Um, but uh, I did not know that. I had been told that somebody had been hired for the lead design position. So I went home and found that I'd left the window of my apartment open. There had been a cold snap, and all the pipes were frozen and burst. Oh. oh, bad day. But there was a letter from Gary saying, <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, here's the deadline by which we want to see everything. Oh, and here's another 50 questions we want you to answer. On pole arms, I assume. Yeah, yeah, they were 50, they were 50 <laughs> questions on history and stuff. Yep. <laughs> so I said, okay. I scrapped the uh, Frost Giant Castle and I did the scenario that I invented off the top of my head for Fall Revel. And I wrote that up. And I typed it up on a, a typewriter, which Paul now has a treasure, treasure trove. It's an old Underwood that my dad had. And I, I typed it up on that. And at midnight, back in those days, uh, the post office was still open. My job ran from 3 to 11 at night. 
So I was typing in the garage when everybody had gone to bed. And then I rushed to the post office. And at midnight of the day that it was supposed to be in, I got a postmark. And then I thought, waited. And I waited. And I waited. And on February 9th, the day my grandfather had died a year earlier, I got a letter from them. And I wouldn't open it. I didn't need the rejection. Thank you very much. Was it sent me a letter? Was it like college that things where like it's thin, so you're nervous if it's thick? <laughs> you know, it's good yeah, news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had forgotten that Gary had said that we have a lot of people. I'm sorry if we don't get back to everybody. We'll send you a postcard or something to let you know. But yeah, so I had this envelope and I wouldn't open it and I paced around the apartment 45, 50 minutes and finally said, oh well. I opened it up and somewhere I have this letter. <laughs> I opened it up and it said thank you for your submission. It was good. Matter of fact, the answers to the questions were near perfect. I go, duh. Take home test. Oh. And, uh, oh, by the way, the adventure, we love the adventure. Kim Cask loves the adventure. Kim wants to publish it in Dragon Magazine, uh, but I think it deserves its own product. Well, it wasn't finished. I, I ran out of time. So it was the first, I don't know, 15 rooms of a 39-room uh, adventure. And, uh, oh, by the way, at the end of the letter, the job's yours if you want it. I went, what? You you couldn't start with that? <laughs> Fly away. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so uh, I found that I had been offered the job, and now I'm pacing around and going, all right, now now's the time to make that call and say thanks, but no thanks. Wow. But I got to tell my friends. Well, I'm I'm not quite done. So I I, I pick up the phone and everybody's in class. We don't have cell phones. Okay. Can't call my parents. They're in Afghanistan. Well, there's this lady who I cleaned house for to make a little money on the side. Diane Cummings. She's heir to the uh, fortune that is Consolidated Food. One of their companies is Sarah Lee. Wow. Um, young lady. And so I called Diane Cummings and said, I know you're not going to understand this, but I got to tell somebody. So I told her about the opportunity and what it meant. And she said, well, that's very nice. Congratulations, Harold. Boy, I felt pathetic. <laughs> but I now had the job and I just had to wait for my friends for the weekend to tell them, okay, now I'm going to call and say, no, thanks. And they said to me, are you insane? You know how many people want a job like this and you were picked? I said, yeah, yeah. But, you know, my dad's going to kill me. Five years at Northwestern paying for all of this. This is just going to be. No, no, Harold. You can, you, you know, you have no debts because I paid it for school. Um, and you have no kids, family, whatever, you're fine, you're free, go up there. Go up there for a year, you don't like it, quit, go elsewhere. So I thought, and then I called Brian Bloom, and I said, Brian, 
okay, I'll take the job. When's it start? And they said June. But if you don't take it, we got this guy named Zeb Cook from Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Well, Milton, Nebraska. I'm thinking, Nebraska, we're a hotbed of fantasy. That's right. <laughs> um, and so we were, I, I said, well, I'd like to come up earlier. But I understand if June's when it is, June's when it is. They called me in April and said, the editor that we hired has quit. And we're in the midst of the Dungeon Master's Guide, and we desperately need an editor. You applied for that position. Come up, and we'll make you an editor. But I, I, I want to be the writer, I said. They went, no, no, we, it'll be okay. No, I'm, we're going to have Gary call you. So Gary called me and convinced me to come up. He said, you know, we promote from within. We'll hire Zeb. He'll take the position, but he doesn't write at your level. He, he You're really good, so you'll, we'll transfer you over to design when a position opens up. And that was my career. never happened. I was never put... I was never made a designer, maybe at the very end while I was working for Wizards, but never for TSR. Uh, I would design on the side, but in fact, I became a manager in nine months after nine months of, they would say, this is your next project. And I would say, no, it isn't. What do you mean? Well, Gen Con is happening in three months and nobody's answering the phone because the organizer is off site. Uh, at PAW, Parkside, um, and I'm going to answer to the phones for Gen Con. What? Yes, you, you'll find out that it's very important. So, in fact, uh, after nine months, they made me a manager, and from a manager, I then eventually became vice president of games. And from there, that was, let's see, I joined in 79, uh, June of 82, I was made VP of games. Okay, great. And you're, tw- so, and you're 26, basically. At, in uh, no, well, at that time I was 26, yes. Yeah. I joined when I was 23. Right. And in fact, I was uh, the youngest employee at that time. Yeah. And, and you know, you've graduated, and the job that they offered to you was the lead, des- lead designer, right? Role. To replace Gary, yep. Right. At 23. Yeah, at 23. Oh, but oh, it gets better. I took a $2,000 pay cut to come work for TSR. Yeah. I was being paid $9,500 in my union job, and I came to work for $7,500 a year at TSR. It's like a 20% pay cut for the privilege of being the lead designer, which you didn't become. You were the editor. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, we've had a lot of people on this show, and it seems like that's pretty standard. I don't think it wasn't just it wasn't you. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> let can we, you brought it up. So can we talk about this? Because it, it, it sounds to me we've had a few people, James, have we on the show who've mentioned that the first thing they worked on oh my God, better. <laughs> it is better. Look at that. Yeah, this is my original. Oh, he's got the best. Mine's mine's my office copy. That's great. Yeah. Um, So we've had other people on the show that they mentioned the first thing they did 
was they started work on the DMG. The sense I get is that it was incorrect. You know, you tell me. It sounds like it's a little bit of all hands on deck. I mean, obviously, when the DMG is coming out in 79, it's a big deal, and there's multiple people that are reviewing it. Is that fair to say? Um, well, there were there was a staff of three. Uh, uh, my car editor, uh, uh, myself, and uh, we would review the manuscript. Uh, I think it was Al Hammock. And uh, we would make notes. Uh, I had never read the manuscript, but first the Monster Manual had come out, and then the Player's Handbook, and then we were almost a two-year hiatus before Dungeon Masters was coming out. And oddly enough, one of the things my game group did was say, there's this big void. There is no Dungeon Master guide for this. So we were writing our own uh, at North Shore General Staff. And so when we went up, I had a folder that thick of things that we had invented for ourselves. And uh, yes, there were quite a number of people. Most of us were proofread. We were just copy editing. Uh, Jean Wells got hired at that time, and she started helping, too. Uh, I would read through the manuscript and find gaps and said, well, okay. You, one of the biggest ones was how to destroy an artifact. And I said, I went down to Gary's office and said, Gary, um, you say there's a, ta a table here on ways to destroy an artifact. I can't find the table anywhere in your notes. Um, and we need to put the table in. So do you have it somewhere? And he says, oh, it was something I was going to do, but I didn't get to it. Write it yourself. What? Yeah, write it yourself. <laughs> you wanted to write. <laughs> okay. So I went back and I invented 100 plus ways to destroy artifacts. Uh, 100 plus was because each way I would then give I would say crush beneath the heel of, and then there were four subcategories uh, of a humble ant of. Uh, humble ant. We love the humble ant. We love the humble ant. So. Yeah, the humble ants. Uh, they were, but there's only like eight in the book. If you look, right. My car set the entire 100. You know, you found it. Yeah, there it is. Page. And uh, he he set all 100. And then he looked, and it was a galley this long, this long. And he said, "Hmm, not enough room. Clip, snip, throw that in the trash, literally." And then he pasted down uh, the eight or ten that are there. So there actually were over a hundred different ways. Oh wow! Yeah, somewhere I have the handwritten version, but it, otherwise it's gone. So a lot of things were like that. I also questioned. Some of Gary's logic, I, I noticed a numeric progression, again, computer nerd, um, and he didn't follow the progression. So then I would go to Gary and say, well, I think maybe there's an error here because you have created a, a numeric progression and you're not following it. And he says, no, no, I decided at a certain level they were going to jump. I went, okay, um, why? Gary's answer for anything was... I don't need a reason. It's magic. Okay, Gary. <laughs> so, now I've got now I've got Daniel looking at the book, trying to find it all. Right. Yeah. 
distracted. No, I am distracted. Oh, you caught me. But what I was actually looking for, because I wanted to ask you about, is the the, the monk, because the right the monk is on one table, right? For so I yeah. wanted I wanted to know if you have any backstory about that, because the monk attacks with clerics and druids, and I was looking right. for. But I think doesn't the monk save though as a thief? thief? Is yeah, that yeah? That's right. Yeah. What's that? Do you have any information on that? These are the kind of questions we're interested in. Well, any... We're talking OE that then evolved into AD&D. Remember, we're not talking Dungeons and Dragons. That's not what's in your hand. What's in your hand is advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Absolutely. Uh, so the uh, monk was designed by uh, Brian Bloom and appears in, I believe, Blackmore. Um, and it used a totally different combat system than D&D used. Uh, so then when they did the AD&D rules, they were trying to bring it into at least a relationship to the original D&D. Uh, so, yes, we had him saving like a, um, I believe it's a thief, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes, it is. I don't see where it says it here somewhere. But it, wait, well, it's in the player's handbook too. It says later. That's yeah. in the class. In the Dungeon Master's, yes. Dungeon Master's Guide was the second thing. The player's handbook is where it first starts. In yeah, yes, but yes, uh, saves are. It says includes yeah, thieves, includes assassins and monks, and then on attack matrix, they're treated as as a cleric. Yeah. So that's so what you're saying is that that was intentional so that was a lot yeah. of people okay okay well good do you have any sorry well i've got you here do you have any information so death at zero right death had traditionally been at zero hit points True. and in in the dmg there's this softening of that optional as, right. as i read it optional where it can go to negative 10 but there's this business about negative four or something like that like a single blow do you remember Anything about that's that's caused. I remember the discussion part. I was part of it. What, my position was: I hated to have a character wake up dead. You know, his, his character spent the night. He went to sleep and he never woke up. Why? Well, during the night you were bit by a spider, or during the night uh, thieves came in and cut your throat. Um, I always felt that there should be. Uh, a chance to fight. This is a heroic story. None of this, you sit around passive and your character is gone because the DM decides he's going to do that. Uh, I always was in the mode that DMs are sharing the story with you and constructing the story. They are not your foe. Uh, so I had suggested to Gary that we needed a way to survive and to... Um, not suddenly be dead, but be able to fight like a bear can. You, you know, a bear has that hug. It has the final battle uh, that it can do. So, and Berserker's similar. Uh, we were just trying to come up with something that gave you a chance to come back from the dead because numerically, uh, points are points. They're just numbers. You reach zero, you're dead. Um, and that doesn't work on low-level characters. Low-level characters... They may have two hit points or three hit points. So they meet one foe. The foe gets in a lucky blow. Game over. So we wanted a chance to actually uh, survive these battles at low levels. So, so Dan, before we keep going, there are some questions from our folks. Um, Just starting back to front. um, 
Lloyd wants to know, were you still VP of Games when Wizards bought TSR? No, I was not. Okay. And I, at that point, I was director of uh, several. I was uh, brand manager, product manager of uh, Dragonlance. Um, uh, gosh, uh, Marvel. Um, and uh, the dice, the uh, uh, dragon dice. So I, I had, and Greyhawk, I had several lines that I was now director of. I actually had moved around after I was uh, VP of games, um, which actually at our company, we had VPs and executive VPs. So I always knew I wasn't really a VP. I was a director level. I was middle management. Um so uh, they then decided they were going to go elsewhere, and they moved me into a um, position with, uh, it was called Director of Consumer Services, and that was Gen Con, uh, RPGA Network, uh, the Dungeon uh, Mail Order Hobby Shop. And uh, then from there, I became a director without portfolio. I was Director of Special Projects. Anytime they needed something, they'd come to me. Uh, I became the company historian for a while. And then uh, for a period of time, I was the director of, of periodicals. So I was over uh, Dragon Magazine, Dungeon Magazine, um, S&T, Aries. Uh, and during my time there, I put them ahead of schedule. They'd always been fighting up to the last minute to get it to the publisher or to the printer. And I came in, I said, I don't want to tell you guys what to do, even though I'm the editor in chief, I just want to make it easier for you. So tell me, um, why you are doing it this way. Well, we can't put the thing together until we know what ads we have. Sure. You can. No, no, we can't because we, we don't know how long the articles can be. Well, then you're doing it wrong. You can do it. What we do is we create billboards. We sell the billboards, certain pages. We then put extra pages at the back for additional small ads. And now we can write anything we want now. And then we can uh, get it ahead of time. And they would say, yeah, but we just don't have the time to do that. Sure you do. No, we don't. What if I pay one of you to go home and do a issue uh, at home? What, extra money? Yep. Really? Yep. So we got three issues ahead, and we've been ahead ever since. Oh, that's so, great. Anyway. And, and speaking of segue, since you worked on various uh, uh, settings, what was your favorite, uh, Shannon asks, what was your favorite setting that you worked on? Wow. Uh, the ones I was in charge of, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, in uh, preference of writing order. Uh, Dragonlance, uh, I'm the co-creator of the Dragonlance line uh, and uh, Core Story, which later was novelized as three books. People often think Dragonlance is a series of books that was made into a game. No, no, no. It was a series of adventures that I recommended we create novels for. And uh, then I had to fight the battle to actually get those novels written. Um, Ravenloft, love horror. I've written for Ravenloft even after Wizards took it over and I left the company. Uh, I wrote for White Wolf. So, 
right and loft. I still write with a level of horror, but we're talking um, Robert E. Howard horror, H.P. Lovecraft horror, okay. um, that level. And to go way back to the start of this conversation, one of the things you asked was, what were my influences? Conan the Barbarian, Solomon Kane, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Tarzan, um, John Carter of Mars, uh, a lot of science fiction and fantasy authors uh, of the day. Great. Oh. And the last question we have currently is, uh, you said you worked on Marvel RPG. How was it like working with, for, with Marvel? Did they give you complete license, or how did that work? Well, we had two different licenses with Marvel. The first one I negotiated. Uh, I went to Marvel several times. Uh, I was a, a bit uh, difficult with them because they wanted more money. I would explain exactly how much money we could pay and why. Then they would dictate certain number of products. I would uh, negotiate with them what products we would do. Otherwise, they were really pretty uh, complimentary. We we tried and work with their source material. At one point, we became a source for them. Hmm. And uh, they actually asked for our map makers to become their map makers because we do quality maps and they struggle. They're, they're comic book artists. They're not mappers. Um, so I, the first few times I worked with them on the first license, very well. We, we went really well. The second one, um, our head of marketing at that time, it was his son who was uh, head of marketing or at least negotiated the contract with Marvel. It was for way too much. Um, he, was, he was representing Marvel. They asked for a lot of money. The marketing guy who was his dad that worked for TSR said, yeah, sure. Oh, geez. And, and then it was a struggle to try and make a profit because it, it wasn't designed financially to succeed. Um, I, did, I, I love Marvel. I was the resident expert in 2000 on Spider-Man. And on uh, the Incredible Hulk, and if you wanted to know something, you'd call Harold, uh, and that included uh, Marvel could do that as well. Uh, awesome! All right, Dan. Sorry, thanks so much. Uh, the fans, the, the our guests, listeners really love it. Thank you. you know, this is this is the second reference to the Incredible Hulk on today's show. That's right. Because forty years ago today, eight p.m. in the evening. The Incredible Hulk is on TV, but right. we digress. We would be, <laughs> we, we're doing, we do 40 years ago. So it's, it's 19. I don't know if you know this, but it's January, 1981. Um, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan has just been uh, declared the winner in the electoral count uh, three days ago. Without, My grandfather would have loved it. He told me that uh, Ronald Reagan, the actor, would be our next president. <laughs> Are you insane? <laughs> no, that's right. Um, well, it did, and we had a uh, we had a uh, a businessman and a, and a and a TV guy uh, as president recently too. So um, we would be remiss, of course, if we didn't talk about C one and A two. Can you tell us a little bit? Ah, there it is. Yes, because James has recently run A2, and James and I went through C1 recently. We, right. I haven't run it, but we played in it. Could you tell us a little bit about those two, and particularly your concept? Because I read online about how when you were writing C- C1, your, your concept of an adventure was different than – you had talked about the dungeon crawl that you were used to going right. through. Your, your concept right. was different, correct? 
Yes, that's that's true. Because I'm a storyteller, I wanted to tell stories. Up to that point, most adventures, and this is why they were able to do computer games early on that were Dungeons & Dragons type games, which were dungeon crawls, was you would go into a dungeon, you'd open a door, there would be a monster in the room, you'd stand in the doorway so you could constrict attacks, and you the monster would charge you and fight to the death. And then you'd go into the room, look for the treasure, get the treasure, get out, and go to the next room. And none of the rooms had any logic behind them. Not until Gary wrote the G series and the C series was it a unified product. Um, the story tended to have a goblin living next to a dragon living next to skeletons, if you could call that living. Um, they had a bare bone uh, place. But anyway, um, the didn't have much logic behind it. When you would play those games, it was always just monster or the obstacle and reward and go on to the next story. I want our door. I wanted to turn it into a unified story. I also wanted to say, we can do much more. Don't limit your imagination. Let me sh show you what's possible. So when I did C1, which wasn't C1 at the time, it was just uh, the hidden shrine. Uh, it was called the, uh, actually, Lost Tomoachan, uh, the hidden shrine of Laba'atum, uh, which means the place of fallen stones. And I, again, I had a minor in history, and I had just, uh, after studying Babylon and um, Nineveh, uh, we had uh, had a course in uh, Mesoamerica. And I was fascinated by it. And I had read an article of the uncovering of a tomb in uh, Palanque in uh, the Yucatan. And I had the actual uh, article in, I don't know, National Geographic or whatever in front of me. And when you read it, it read like an adventure. It was so amazing. So actually, it's, it is in C1. It's the uh, tomb of Troke Popolokos, the uh, uh, vampire. Okay. Incan vampire. Well, he's not Incan. He's more Olmec. Uh, there's Olmec, there's Toltec, there's uh, Aztec. There's, and then I would go and grab some of the Incan philo uh, mythology and add that. Too. But anyway, Mesoamerica. So I wanted to do something different. I wanted to see if I could challenge all of the standards. So we did pre-generated characters, um, as you have seen. Uh, one of them is a female. Uh, the first female ever issued in any D&D uh, &D adventure that had been published at that time. Uh, one of them is uh, a Latin. He is, he is uh, uh, Aztec. And uh, from that point of view, that makes him the first minority ever featured in an adventure. And the only <laughs> Caucasian is a thief, <laughs> yeah, who's kind of a shadow of uh, uh, the Gray Mauser from uh, Fritz Lieber. Uh, so I had I did those characters. I thought this is neat. What would I like to see that nobody else has? And they would often say, so you're grabbing your knife. Where is your knife? 
So if you look at the characters, it, it, I gave you positions for your equipment. Tells you exactly where everything is. Um, I gave you a background story. Usually they say, make up your own background story. No, I gave you one that would allow you to uh, role play. And I gave you some uh, characteristics that you could use to make it easier to uh, play act. Um, I then started looking at everything else. Wandering monsters are normally just a list of monsters and a number. You know, one to three Balrogs. Why are one to three Balrogs running around the countryside? Doesn't make sense. One Balrog, it would kill everybody. What the heck? One to three. I'm sorry. Gary, change your shark in the original edition. He also had green Martians and red Martians and thoats and apples, which is from John Carter of Mars. Who likes John Carter of Mars? Anyway, uh, so I decided. <laughs> I decided I wanted to do uh, random encounters with personality. So if you read the random encounters, you'll notice that they have a tactic. Like the wildcat tends to like to crawl up onto the lintel of a door, lets you walk through, jumps on your back, claws you, and runs away. And then goes instead finds another door to climb up over. So this cat annoys you several times during the adventure. Uh, so I thought I'll do that. And then I wanted to create atmosphere. And I thought Gary, I, I looked at what Gary had done in um, the village of Hamlet T1, and he had divided text into. Uh, bold and regular. Bold was something that you would discover when you first walked into the room, what you saw. And um, regular print was things you had to discover through actions. It might be uh, game stats for the monsters, whatever. And so uh, I, that's when I thought, well, why don't I do a story, a description that is atmospheric, that will describe the area and make it interesting and that I will stand out some way. It is now box text. A lot of people use these techniques. And the rest is to be discovered. So that copy then follows. Uh, the other thing I did was I needed a lot more to write, more, a lot more room. And you notice that in um, C1, the monster stats are not there. I put them on a chart so that I had more room to write story. So all the monsters are on a chart. And actually, after I did that, almost every adventure I do has the monster stats reserved to a Dungeon Master's chart, so it's easy to find. And could you tell us a little bit about how it came about that you wrote it? Because my research showed that oh. you wrote it very quickly, right? It was for Origins? Yes, Yes, um, Gary was supposed to write it. He had written uh, G1, the series for Origins, the year before, and then the D series for Gen Con the year before. And he was scheduled to write the tournament for Origins, and he didn't get to it. So he came to the design department, editor, okay? Nobody knows I'm a designer. I was hired as an editor. And he asked Lawrence Schick and Tom Mulvey and... Oh, gosh. All Richie. And anyway, he asked the people in the design department to take on this additional responsibility. And they all say, I'm way too busy. I, I don't have time for this. 
And I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he went, you're an editor. I'll do it. And when Gary heard I would do it, he said, oh, great, because I know he'll write it. So I wrote the original tournament, Nine Encounters, Nine Encounters, Nine Encounters. First one was uh, Nine Encounters for um, the first round, then Nine Encounters for the middle round, and Nine Encounters for the final round. And uh, they playtested it. And Gip Williams, who was a young child at that time, uh, that's not fair. He was a young man at that time, teenager. He came into my office and told me that I'd screwed it all up, that there's a were jaguar in there, and there's absolutely no way you can kill a were jaguar because they have no uh, weapons, no magical weapons. I said, it doesn't take magical weapons. Yes, it does. Takes a magical plus one to hurt a were creature. It says a magical plus one. They can cast the strength spell on the barbarian. He will gain a plus one to hit from his uh, strength being inflated by magic. There's your magical plus one. That's not how it works. Who are you? You're a kid. I'm the designer. What are you talking about? <laughs> so he went down to Gary's office and told Gary, my, and I was called down to Gary's office. And he said, the kid's right. You're wrong, Harold. Change it. Thanks, Skip. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I went back. I, I put some silver coins there so you'd use them as sling bullets. I, I found it. I put a dagger in there that was silver. I always wondered if, you know, you chopped up a were-creature and you applied fire, why that wouldn't hurt a were-creature. <laughs> you know, I don't know why I need magic, but okay, we we accommodate we accommodated him. Um, so That's I wrote hilarious. that, and then Will Niebling, who had become head of marketing, came to us and said, "I got this great idea. I got this great idea. We're going to publish this. We're going to do a quick print, and we're going to sell it at Origins to pay for our gas money to get there and back." I said, you can't do that. It's not a full adventure. It's a tournament. You need to have a full adventure. And so I turned to my office mate, Jeff Leeson, uh, Duck, as we call him, because he can speak like Donald Duck. If you don't know, you should talk to Jeff Leeson. He, great guy. Anyway, Jeff uh, contributed the way Dave Arneson contributed. He talked to me. I would take notes, and I did all the writing. Um, we had to type it up. Uh, I started on a Saturday and started writing. Uh, oh no, must have been a Monday. It was a Monday because they were leaving on Wednesday to go. Started on Monday morning and I typed and typed and typed and I did not sleep for 48 hours. Mm. Um, and if I had too many errors, I'd have to retype the page. Um, and so... At one o'clock in the morning, Jean Wells and I piled into her little Volkswagen and we drove down to Beloit to uh, Patch Press, who had a quick press place down there. He printed it. We drove back. We dropped off the loose sheets of the manuscript and the um, cover uh, on the steps of uh, TSR and I went home to bed. So I didn't even get to go to orchards mm. and then in the van on the way there they're putting it together and sticking it in the uh 
plastic bags. And if you can dare, if you can get yourself a copy of this, which originally sold for four dollars and fifty cents, you have a lottery ticket because uh, because they were limited numbered copies. Uh, they have tracked on the price. The average is about sixteen hundred dollars a copy. Um, I sold my author's copy and. Um, uh, Jeff sold his with it uh, for $3,500, so $7,000 for the two copies. And then uh, Gary sold his, well, the estate did, for $3,600. And two years ago at uh, Game Hole, they put up a copy, and it sold for $5,000. Of course, I, I don't see that money, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> I, I got four. I didn't even get the four dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> Thank you. And, and what can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, your con- A two, your contribution to the the slavery A2, series? Sure, sure. A two. Uh, Holding it up again. Yep. There it is. Uh, well, A two is actually the series uh, against the slavers. Yep. And the slaver series, uh, which is interesting, um, it is. There's only one game I ever ran for the employees of TSR. It came over to my uh, apartment, which I shared with my car, and I designed an adventure where they got to play for about 15 minutes individually in my campaign world. And uh, by the end of those 15 minutes, they all had broken the law. They all were arrested and they were thrown in jail, stripped of all their possessions, uh, dressed in a loincloth, including the girls, and uh, their left arm was dyed bright purple. Uh, then I had drawn a picture of uh, the map for the cell, um, and they had the night to try and escape. They didn't try. But there was an old, feeble man that was dying in a bed, and Helen uh, Cook's character was a mage, and she was able to learn a spell from him, so she got one spell. Then I put them on a ship to sail across the bay, and uh, again, they had a miniature ship map. They didn't try and break free. And then they got to the shore of big cliffs of Dover, huge, gigantic uh, door in the wall of these cliffs, the Pebble Beach, the Sandy Beach, and um, they still don't know what to do. And they go and they open the door, the guards do, and it cracks open. And this goblin runs out the door and he runs down the surf and he takes an arrow in the back of the head and falls dead in the surf. And all the players looked at each other and went, uh-oh, uh, this is bad. <laughs> and realized I was going to shove them in there and they started being inventive. Some fell into the surf and tried to get themselves some seashells so they would have something uh some grabbed sand um they were dumped in a labyrinth and there were various things that they could encounter but it was based on uh rena the star trek uh where they had to look at natural resources there were a couple spells and one tattooed on somebody one carved in a wall so the mage could get some spells um and it was, of course, a le- uh, there was a minotaur in there. Um, and they had to survive. 
afterwards, we went back uh, the next day to uh, TSR, and Lawrence Schick said, I really am not happy with the level of adventures we're getting for the AD&D Open. They just don't understand what's right. So I think we should write the AD&D Open, which is what the A-Series is. And I have the perfect idea for the finale. All, everybody gets caught, stripped of their possessions, and thrown in this dungeon. Wow. That sounds vaguely familiar there, Lawrence. So that was, that was the basis for which we then would go forward and do the A-Series. Now, I got the middle one, A2, but we did do it as a committee. We came up with general rules that we would all follow. There were nine encounters that we would have, and they had to be a certain, uh, there had to be a trap, there had to be an ambush, there had to be a trick, um, there had to be a monster, there had to be a monster and friends, um, things like that. And we, we had it numerical because in the AD&D Open, it was nine encounters, who went the furthest, how many survived by the end of the tournament. So there was a potential to die in each encounter, or at least get injured. Um, we also were going to do a new monster that was traditional of Gary. He introduced the Rever Oz um, and other uh, new monsters in the various uh, adventures he wrote. So we all did uh, new monsters. Uh, and then we would flesh it out to be actually an adventure, a product, and not just the tournament. So we had both. Very, very, very interesting. And, um, and, and so I guess you got roped in there because I mean, you had written what became C1 already by that point in time. So, I mean, because again, you're like, hey, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm an editor, right? I'm not a designer. That's right. But here I'm, you are. I'm just a cook. That's right. And, and you, so I, I guess your reputation as a writer was well established by that point. Well, no. Again, all I'm doing is writing tournaments, not product tournaments. If if you notice, all of my products say Harold Johnson and Tom Oldbay. Tom would help. Uh, would come back. They'd say we want a product out of this, and I'd say it's not a full product. It's a tournament. And then I would expand on it. And what I didn't get written, I would talk to Tom about and say, well, these are my ideas, Tom. And then Tom would flash it out. Tom did uh, a lot of the typing of my notes into actual uh, copy. Uh, so they had a designer, quote, fixing it for me. Mostly he was just, he would step up and say, I know Harold's not gonna get it done. So let me see all of his notes. He's designed it in his head. I just need to know what he planned. And then I would take the manuscript from Tom and I would massage it and rewrite sections. Well, you know, the, the A-series uh, combined and C1 both made the top 20 in Dragon Magazine's top 30 Indie adventure of all time, so that's so. So you're in there twice. Could 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 you? Could, which is, is is quite an honor. Can could you talk about Grimslade? Well, oh, oh, no, I want to talk about a different villain just for a moment. You got I, it. I want to do a merciless plug for something that has nothing to do with me. Okay. Sure. Uh, if you recall the villains of the slavers, we had a head slaver in each one of the adventures. Mine was Marquesa. Right. Remember. 
Marquesa, the oh, yeah. half elf, the wicked elf. A famous, uh, a famous. I was just going to say, Harold, one of our dear friends, Carlos Lysing, his, you know, he loves Marquesa. He, and, and the most evil of the slavers was Marquesa by far. The rest of them were kind of meh. But she's truly, you know, because she's doing experiments on slavers. It's, it's terrifying. It's awesome. So it's, we love her. Yeah, yeah. We had to make them immortal. We had to be able to have the um, villains there at the end. And so... Everybody had their own ways they did it, but I was, I'm going to create doubles. And so if you've killed Marquesa, you didn't get Marquesa, you killed a double. So yes, she is, she's very wicked. Well, um, yeah, there's a company out there called Castle Entertainment. Do you know that one? Oh, yes. We we very well know them. They, they, we actually, uh, Carlos and I are, are and Dan, he, he ran us through an adventure. He's on the show all the time. He wrote an adventure for our tournament. We have our uh, shameless plug uh, before the pandemic, a lifetime ago. We had GrogCon, which is our tournament in Orlando, and he wrote an adventure for us, and he's going to write one this time for October 2021, October 15th through 17th here in Orlando, Florida. Shameless plug. Thank you very much. So there you go. There you go. But so, yes. Well, in, yeah, my, we, in we fact, love I, did, too. I was recently contacted by uh, him, and uh, he was... Uh, uh, I, I, tr we were talking about, he said, I inspired him and I said, that's nice. <laughs> and so I looked at his stuff and I said, have you ever written? He says, oh yeah, I have a company. <laughs> and I looked up castle. Well, in castle entertainment, there are three adventures around Marquesa. Yeah. So I, I have ordered them because I just want to see what he did with my villain. And then <laughs> there's a fourth one called something like, uh, dark roses and black thorns. Yep. Uh, which, oddly enough, well, if you've read it, I had some lieutenants for Marquette. So sure, yeah. one is Icar, uh, Icar, the blind warrior. Which, if you look at the bound version, the hardbound version, there's a helmet on the cover with no eye holes. That oh, is really? Icar. It did it, my my lieutenant is the image of the uh, slavers. Anyway, Similar to and that then, one. Yeah, like that. That's him. That's Icar. Yeah. And then there is Blackthorn. Right. And Blackthorn looks like a cadaverous uh, undertaker. Only Blackthorn is actually a ogre, ogre mage. Mag ogre magi, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm sure that's what the fourth adventure, but I didn't know beyond say two. There's these products from Castle Entertainment. Yeah, this so, so I have no idea how good they are or not. But well, they're, I'm out, they're outstanding. Uh, Carlos is very evocative. Um, has has taken uh, what you put in here, and you know, just personal aside, I would I was 13 when I got this, and I had to go to the New York City. I lived in Queens, so you take the subway, and I was having something to do with government or something. My mother was going here, there, and everywhere. I read this thing cover to cover multiple times, you know, and, and just the, the dread that you can read in this, you know, the stories of the haunt and what, what the lives lost of the slavers. And, and then later when I try to DM it, it's I, the only, I don't even call it a criticism, but if the players get into the fort undetected, they're awesome. 
there's just almost unless they follow exactly what like the tournament where they drop them, start them here. If they just show yeah. up as an, part of their adventure campaign, they're going to get detected because at least the ones I know, because it's really well yeah. done the the strategy and the amount of things, and then of course the cloaker, which is famous, the Arrow Lotus one in the back. So, um, yeah. uh, originally this and A three are my favorites. Uh, and, and A4 actually for me is quite controversial because most players hate being captured. They hate it. They hate it. They hate it. And for a time, and I stripped of their items. Yeah, that's the part. Yeah, capture is one thing. Taking their stuff and you know having to make a flap, you know, a slapjack and a blackjack and, and use a spear out of a you know stone. Hate it. They yep. despise it. And um, so you know, again, this was. Uh, you know, this to me was the first, you know, I know the G series was before this, but to me, this was the super module because it, sh it clearly showed um, it became personal to the players if they really became invested in this. I, I think um, whenever I write and I am writing now, um, my this, for instance, this book here. This is all my notes for Beneath Tomochen. Wow. Um, and uh, it's it's page after page of notes. It's the way I write uh, initially. We did actually do a limited version of Return to Tomochen um, that's available out there. But uh, I try and teach something. I try and say, let me show players and referees something else they can do. Let's not get mired in the, you know, kick open the door, kill the monster, get the treasure. Let's not get mired in the, I can't come up with a story myself. Uh, I need a story that I can personalize. Um, so when we did the A-series, one of the things that we talked about was we want to teach them something else. The thing I wanted to teach them, and we did do, is that play that monsters are not stupid. Anything that players can come up with as a strategy, monsters can too. Um, when uh, Tracy wrote the second Ravenloft adventure, uh, well, it was co-written by a number of people, but Tracy's uh, was the original. A lot of it is designed so that you can personalize it as you go along. When we were trying to do this, we said, let's show them strategies. And if you look at the original uh, progression, you start with, I think, half orcs. And then as you go up in level, the next foe is orcs. And then in mine, you're up two levels now. Um, the first uh, type of basic monster is hobgoblins. And as you rise in level, the next level of creatures that you're facing are goblins. So you'll notice that as the characters are on an upward climb for their experience and their abilities, the monsters are getting weaker intentionally because we are beating the crap out of the heroes by showing the monsters can be smart and they can work with strategy, and you don't have to. Um, there's a tendency when you're designing that characters get up to 10th level, and then you say, why should I uh, have them fight kobolds 
which, by the way, is the last thing in A4, right. is they're fighting kobolds. Uh, why? Kobolds are worthless. They can't possibly take down this 10th level character. So I've got to create a monster that's bigger and better and bigger and better. And uh, I'm going to ignore orcs and I'm going to ignore, you know, that's why there's three Balrogs now. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Dragons are horrifying, but they weren't. You get a lance and you get a dragon down to the ground, you kill him really quickly. Not anymore. But that was the original thing. Right. So when we decided we were going to do the A-series, we were going to show you how to be smart as a DM and challenge them with the strategies and to establish that monsters are people too. They're intelligent. Um, and even when they're dumb, they have a uh, basic you know, survival intelligence. Um, and we're going to challenge you to think differently. Also, in our tournaments, we did not, uh, prior to this, you had one solution. You'd face an encounter and they'd say, well, you've got to get the right amount of sand on this when you take the golden idol off or everything will go to hell. And we would say, well, one thing you could do is this. Um, and the mummies are fireproof. Okay, now come up with solutions. And we allowed anything. If, if the players wanted to sneak around the mummies who are fireproof, great. If they wanted to trip the mummies and drop them into a pit, more power to them. <laughs> you know, let's, let's be clever about uh, strategies and encourage our players' creativity. And that was the other thing that we wanted to do in the A-series. Um, so I, I would say, you know, you kind of answered Jonathan Becker, who's a good friend of ours of the show. Some of his questions. Hi, Jonathan. Yeah, he, he, he we talk about, um, you know, the charted monster that was that was in Dragonlance. Same thing, the, the charts that you put in, um, yep. I guess. And you kind of talked this line between the the old dungeon crawl, kick the door down, kill the monster. Now you've you've. Uh, introduced and the style of play became this kind of set up a scenario, make give the monsters an even break per Gary kind of thing. Um, it's a living world. There's things going. And, and the other question I had is, you know, C1 was so evocative because it had all the illustration it had the separate book like S1. Oh, yeah. Was yeah. C1 first or S1 was first that had the booklet? of? No, of S1 was first. I was inspired by S1. Um, I saw that and I said, I want that. Uh, often I would see a product out there or I would see a tournament and I say, that's really good. I want that. I want to do something like that. Um, and in this case, I wanted to have the book and I conceived what pieces of art we needed. Uh, and Dave Sutherland, who was our art director, uh, did it. Now, in the very, very first uh, version of it, the tournament version, there is uh, art. And some of it is great, and some of it's not. Um, I was talking to Diesel, David LaForce, the other day, and he was telling me that the first art he ever published was in uh, the purple set of D&D Basic. And I said, no, it wasn't. He said, yeah. I said, no. The first thing that you published was in my adventure, the tournament version of uh, C1. Oh, wow. 
you're kidding. I said, well, I happen to have a copy in the car. <laughs> and I brought it in and showed him. Oh, that's really good. And then there's a picture of uh, the heroes fighting a giant slug, uh, pictures of a, a mummified centaur. He says, these are really good. Who did these? <laughs> I did. He said, what? I said, I was told there was no artists available and that I couldn't have any art. I can't say I'm an artist, but I'm a pretty good draftsman. So I went home and I grabbed my comic books and I would thumb through them till I'd find something I liked and I put it together and I penciled those things and I took them into Dave and said, now I've got art. He said, oh, these, these are really pretty good, Harold. Do you mind if I ink them? I said, no, go ahead. So if you see there, it'll say DCS3, which is Dave Sutherland third. And then there's a weird, uh, almost Chinese-looking thing. But if you look at it carefully, it's H-J-J, Harold James Johnson. So I'm awesome. an artist. Awesome. Who That's knew? super cool. So, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I, I was going to share, but I'm looking through the uh, artwork there. That's awesome. So Let, the, the, can I, I, I it's getting kind of, I'm thinking I'm coming across dark. Let me step over here and turn on the light. No, you look good, but that's okay. I love your TSR shirt. Is that a little better? Yeah, that's good. You look. Yeah, I mean, okay. at least on the screen that we're we're streaming, you look you look perfect. You actually look brighter than you look bright, brighter than Dan. So See my shirt. I love I TSR. That that shirt is amazing. Um, <laughs> the the other question. So one of the questions which I think is good. So then you get to the Dragonlance. I know uh, Dan's got quite where there was the first time that, especially Dragonlance, when I got the first one, Dragons of Despair, it felt like you had you were on a ride and you kind of went from place to place. So what's your take on yeah. it? What, what is the, is there a correct version of it? When is it appropriate to have the, you know, kind of your ride as adventure, middle ground? You know, what's your take on that? Well, that's a good question. When we had uh, done C1, and then later the A-series, we were evolving from the uh, monster trap challenge in a room and then a treasure uh, to something that was uh, more complete. And you had strategies and you had tactics, and that was fine. Um, and then we did the A-series, and we had backstories that were more detailed and you see the link. Uh, Marquesa is one of them. You keep running into things that Marquesa is doing, and then you find Marquesa herself and the potential to run into her later in the series. So the story was now continuing on, and we weren't the first. I mean, Gary did it in the G series and the C series, uh, D series. Um, when we got to Dragonlance, I said, up to this point, we are looking at fixed locations. And I conceived the idea of events and said, what if there's a story? And it really doesn't matter what location you're in, the events of the story will take place. They will find you. Um, Tracy didn't quite model that in the original uh, Dragonlance. He still has locations, but he does do uh, progressive story. We did do start adding events, and then we would do encounters. So you had both of them. 
when I write nowadays, I tend to write uh, like this. This is a, a challenge I've been given. So I will make I will make a list and I will just start listing ideas. So for instance, this is heroic abilities. It says strong, swift, agile, willpower, endurance, observant, intuitive, persuasive. In this one, this is a board game version of something that I'm doing uh, for. <laughs> Someone challenged me to write something for that. Um, and uh, I would then use this word or uh, phrase to inspire me to do something. Um, when we started doing Dragonlance, one of the things we decided we needed was an excuse not to fight the dragon, kill the dragon, get the treasure. We were originally, Tracy proposed a series of three adventures uh, featuring dragons. Jeff Grubb proposed a series of three adventures uh, centered around dragons. These were both submitted to marketing. Marketing came back and said, dragons are dinosaurs for boys in fantasies. And most of our customers are young men. So we recommend that you do a series on all the dragons in Dungeons and Dragons, which is, you know, five good dragons, uh, five evil dragons uh, by color. Um, and I said, okay, let me see which one I like the best. I thought Tracy had a good start. So I took Tracy aside to my house and we uh, paced and talked. And I said, okay, if it's always fight the dragon, kill the dragon and get his treasure, why do you do that twice? Why do you do that 10 times? And by the way, there's a king of dragons and a queen of dragons. So there's actually 12 dragons. Um, so uh, wait, there's 12 months in the year. Huh. We could do 12. You know, Dragon Magazine has a problem with their calendar every year because they have to pay for 12 unique pieces of art. But if we use the art from 12 products, now the uh, calendar becomes a promotion for us. And anyway, I'm sorry, I'm digressing. <laughs> the point is that we looked at it as we decided that we needed to do the dragons as a tapestry. They're, they're the world behind which the story then takes place. So we now uh, evolved into the world is a story. And the adventures take place around the world. And you may, you know, be at Little Big Horn, but survive because you were on a hill over here and you never got into the battle with Custer. Um, or uh, you may have heard that Custer was wiped out. And... Now you're trying to round up the villain, City Bull, or what have you. Uh, I'm just using that as an example. I do not mean to imply that City Bull was a villain. That's okay. Um, uh, we've we've already filled the claim out, the lawsuit. It's all, don't worry about it. It's no problem. We took oh, care of it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but fact, yeah, that's, Dan is our a resident attorney, a part of the legal department. Has is already yeah, Dan. making a statement. Is, is typing, feverishly typing a statement right now, saying that uh, all <laughs> all characters are fi historical or fictional. It's, it's not represented. Something like that, right, Dan? What's the? Uh, oh yeah, and Harold Johnson is not an agent of the show. We, nothing he says right. attributable to Grog Talk. His opinions are his own. <laughs> exactly. Yes. 
Nate. Thanks. <laughs> Yo, yeah, we'll throw it for me, guys. Yeah, we'll throw you under the bus in a second. Yeah, you didn't know that about us? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, actually, uh, great. Uh, yeah, James actually warned me about you. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Could you? Could you? T- do you have any Gary stories for us that maybe you haven't told before? Maybe that you have told before. We love, love Gary stories. I've already saw on the internet where you talked about how Gary was hard to get into. Right? You got to get past the secretary. Unless you're Skip uh, Williams, who yeah. who has a lycanthropist question, then you can go right in. Apparently. You know, based on what he just said. Skip got in. Yeah, Skip got the lycanthrop question right away. He ran in there because the. Yeah, it really depends on. A lot of people believe that Gary was um, aloof and hard to get to. Uh, And part of it was he was running a company, but he always wanted to be a game designer. That's what his love was. And um, there came a time during the purge. Um, that it was felt that Gary was becoming very unreasonable. They would say, Gary would say, well, nothing goes out that I haven't reviewed first. Uh, This uh, centered around an adventure for Gamma World where he had written it. I think it was the Legion of Gold and he had uh, plastique and he had firecrackers. And so the we had three levels. We had the design department. We had the development department, who was doing part of what I did as an editor, which was looking for errors and, and problems and bringing those logic problems back to the designer. But our development department decided that they were the designers, and they would save the design. And then there was the editors. Um, so they said, we don't need firecrackers because there is plastique. So they removed it, and it went to publication. And Gary was furious and told them, are you guys morons? You can't set off plastique without, uh, uh, what do you call them, the caps, the uh, uh, blasting caps. And that's what the fireworks were for. Um, and you should have talked to me. So it, it he got a reputation as being a hard man to deal with. And I, I knew his position. I understood that it was, no, ask me. Because when I joined in 79 and I'm doing Dungeon Master's Guide and I have a question, I go down to Gary and I say, I don't understand. Yeah, explain to me. And often he would say, you know, Harold, I really hadn't thought that out. And whatever you think is fine. Um, or he would say, um, well, what do you think? And I'd express it. Or he would say, this is what I want. And you'd, you'd accept that. He was the writer. He was the author. Um, but the development department didn't think that way. They thought they knew better than everybody and they do their own thing. So um, Gary did seem aloof. When they came to us, I, I had gained a reputation as being able to do um, very difficult assignments. Uh, and they came to us and they had gone to Toy Fair in New York in February. They came back and said, we have promised Oriental Adventures by Gen Con, which is August. We need you to have it done by then. Now, in those days, we didn't start anything till we had a finished manuscript. And then we would play test the manuscript, 
rewrite, 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 and then we would play test it again. We would edit it, play test it again. Then we would typeset it, um, lay it out. We had no preconceptions as to, you know, what was a chapter, whatever. It was however long it needed to be. And then art was fill in. We just had clip art that we would put in. Mike had a big pile of art that he had gotten from fans, and he just plug them into various places. Um, and I'm told I have to do this product. It normally takes two and a half years to do a product, and I have seven months. No, six months, because i got to have a month to get it printed. And everybody says, Harold, you got to go and tell them it's impossible. It's not going to be done. It can't be done. And I said... Well, it can't be done the way we've always done it, but I don't think that you can say it can't be done. And they said, no, it's impossible. you got to go tell them, you know, they can't do this. I said, no, wait, this would be our major release. You're telling them they, we can't get the major release out. Do you guys understand that our paycheck comes from the company making money? We're going to figure a way to do this. So I then uh, went to Gary and I said, I need the manuscript. And he gave me 20 pages. Yep. Yep. And so he would, he would say, how did, and I'd say, guys, let's do the cover. We can't do the cover. The product's not done. What? <laughs> we can't do the cover. The product's not done. I said, I can do the cover now. Not only can we do the cover now, we can do it before anything is. That's crazy. If we do it now, even if it's just a prototype cover, I can put it in an ad. If I can put it in an ad, I can put it in Sears catalog and in, you know, Walmart and toys for us before we ever have a product. I don't care if it's the perfect cover or not. It, let's do it close. Let's do a, a thumbnail. Nowadays, they actually do it way in advance, and it's a finished piece of art, and it's not a rough. But uh, I kept saying, guys, you have no idea that we're doing it wrong. And because, as I say, I think as a computer, layers. I, I took the steps around, chop, 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 chop. Okay, this goes over here, gets started on. This goes over here. You come down here. So we had this unfinished manuscript. And uh, Zeb, well, I needed somebody to write it for me because it wasn't finished. And uh, Zeb volunteered. I have to say, Zeb is an amazing designer on the fly. He can uh, pull things out of his hat. Uh, sometimes I inspire him, as in the case of uh, Escape from New York, when he said, there, you can't create a good game about this. And I said, yes, you can. And he said, no. I said, Seb, you can create a good game about anything. The question is, will anybody buy it? You know, I can do one on golfing, but I think most golfers want to golf. They don't want to play a game. Uh, so he said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, give me a moment. And I told him. And he went home that night and he came back in with – Escape from New York, all designed and said, you're right. No, I did it exactly like you said. You, it should be done. I got the game. So anyway, Zeb agreed to do Oriental Adventures from an outline through some interviews with Gary. And then he was scared that Gary would not allow him 
to do anything. And I said, okay, give me 12 big questions, 12 big questions. Um, and I'll go to Gary and I'll ask those big questions about this design. And he said, but there's lots more. I said, we start with 12. We'll see how he responds. So we went in and uh, presented the 12 questions. And by the third one, he said, I think you figured out where I want this to go. This is good. I, I trust you guys to do it. <laughs> it was like, cool. See you, Zeb, go away. <laughs> now, Gary, we have to talk about compensation because <laughs> he's not going to do it for free. Um, he's going to have to work every hour of uh, the day to get this done. He's going to have to work in the evenings and so on. It's like, okay, well, I think I'll just share my royalty with him. Whoa. <laughs> I was really trying to suggest that we pay him after we start selling. So we pay him on the back end, not as a part of a royalty, but yeah. So Gary was very reasonable when it came to that. So yeah, we, uh, he, he's not as, inaccessible as everybody thought. And um, I would do it that way. Anytime anybody thought that he was being high handed, I'd say, no, you are being, you don't understand that he's the creator, that he's the author. And you are trying to say, oh, you have to save it. You're not there to save it. You're there to assist. It's like, being the DM and you're there to destroy the player characters. You're there to entertain. You are the storyteller. You are to entertain, not to kill all the heroes. Um, yes, and if they do have to die, make it a heroic death, guys. This is a this is they paid their dime to take this ride. Let them have the ride. Don't make them get in the car and step out the other side and say, oh, that was a nice roller coaster ride because it never went up the hill. Um, I really think that the way you're going to get people back is they have a good experience, right? You, you teach your kids a new game, right? If they lose, 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 are they going to want to play the game? You know, it's interesting. In, uh, in normal games, you're right, but we have a lot of experiences. We ask people, well, who was your first character, right? And ours inevitably was an elf magic user who had one hit point and would die to a rat or something. We'd be like, this is amazing. And you'd roll up again. It was, you know, some of that game was right. the challenge of it. But I, yeah, if it was my 50th character, elf the magic user number 27 who died, I probably would get discouraged after a while. But this game does allow that first time, which normally in any game design, you wouldn't have, you know, within the first five minutes you die, that uh, that's not in inspiring for replay. But that's, you're hooked. Yeah, here you're hooked, you're hooked with it. Well, you know, part of it is it's a unique experience. Whatever game you play, even if it's A2 or C1, uh, Secret of the Slaver Stockade or Hidden Shrine of Tomoanchun, which is Tomoanchun, that's the actual word. It's a typo in the and been. Oh, now, now I'm, oh, my head hurts because Tomoanchun, the yeah. original uh, city of the gods that uh, the uh, world of the Aztecs comes from. Um, it was dropped out in t editing. Anyway, 
Tomoachin versus Tomoachin. Got it. Tomoachin. Yeah. You're missing the Seinfeld episode. No, I'm so sorry. It says moops. I'm sorry. That's yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's the name now. That's it. No, it's like, it's like uh, the gibbering mouther. Uh, those were based on actually Aztec uh, gods. Uh, I would, uh, Zilonin, the hairy mother goddess, which is actually the goddess of maize, um, uh, corn. And uh, the gibbering mother is actually the gibbering mother. But I thought that that would piss off all the mothers when they saw that their kid was referring to them as a monster. So that's how it became the gibbering mouth. Oh, that's amazing. That's wow. what mouth anyway. So, so what, do you, think, what do you think of that art? I R L O. That's that's. Oh, it's it's good. It's Isn't good. It? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, definitely what I was striving for, and you can see again the H P Lovecraft influence on me, them and the Boggles and the Cloaker, and you know I I tend to create monsters that are Cthulian. And, yes, the cloaker. Yes. And speaking of low hit point magic users, I'd just yes. like to ask you briefly about Grimslade. I know. I, I was about to get back to Grimslade. Do you notice how I talk in a well and then we go over here? Then we That's our show. That's our show. Yeah. That's, okay. that's our show. Yeah, because I want to read it, okay? Because I often forget to look up in the Rose Gallery, because we have guests on, and I often forget that a lot of these guests had characters, PCs, that are in the Rose Gallery. So I remember this time, and sure enough, there's one. But I got to read it, because I, what I want to know is, is this an accurate description of okay, your, you sure. playing Grimslade? Grimslade is a secretive and confusing figure to many, being a mix of black humor Deception, stubbornness, invertiveness, and self-preservation. On adventures, Grimslade is extremely reluctant to use his spells, preferring to rely on a plethora of small devices he has prepared. When questioned or bored, he may answer with a lie or half-truth, the great truth, as his words are known, and may prove to be obstinate at the most difficult of times. And I could go on. There's a lot more. But so is that an accurate description of you playing your character yeah absolutely that was grim slate i i tend to create characters that for to challenge myself with I had a character named higbold who i determined was a thief but he was a failed thief so i branded him with a t on his cheek so everybody would know he was a thief so that he would have to grow his hair long and put it over his face to hide that brand yeah, and higbold he had a survival uh um, he, he tended to be a survival, a guy who tried to survive. So, like, we're being chased by a horde of orcs uh, on uh, wargs, and uh, I've determined that there's no way I'm going to win this fight. So I wait till I take an arrow, and I intentionally fall off my horse, and they charge after, and as soon as they're gone, I brush myself off, bandage my wound, and walk away. <laughs> But they're all going, oh, poor Higball, he died. And did you, so for people like Grimsley, did you decide on a persona in advance, or did it just sort of, is, is that you, how you play the uh, I'm going, Okay, I'm going to drop some names, uh, and if anybody comes across them, they'll say, hey, he talked about you. Uh, one of the other referees for the North Shore General Staff was a gentleman named Glenn Grotefeld. 
And Glenn had, in my opinion, interesting dungeon design and a relatively boring game. Um, I get very bored during his game, and this is where Grimslade came into being. Um, I was wandering around with Grimslade, and uh, nowadays we have spells that say identify. So you, you find a magic ring, you cast identify, and you know it's a ring of flight. Not in the old days. You cast a spell and it says it's a magical ring. You have no idea what it does. You have to experiment to figure it out. So in that game, I acquired a ring. Didn't know what it was. And uh, later a second ring. And this ring, I started trying to fly, levitate, climb walls, lightning bolts, just trying everything. um, And I'm getting nowhere. And we come into this room with this big altar. And I go, huh. Well, I've gone through everything else. So I take my staff and I put it before the altar, lying down, and I step back and I go like this. And the referee, finally figuring out what I'm doing, goes, and the staff rolls to you. And they go, oh, my God, it's an evil altar. No, it was a ring of telekinesis. I was rolling the staff to me. So now I know what it is. And I realize, okay, they're so busy wanting to understand what on their list will solve something. In the old days, Zork-style adventures, you were looking for the key word. You know, how do you get out the door? Well, do you have the key? No, where's the key? I don't know. There's a rug there, and there's a hammer. Okay, uh, maybe there's something under the rug. Take the rug. You can't take the rug. And after a while, you take the hammer and say, pry up the nails, hold the rug down. Yes, underneath the rug is the key. Okay, now use the key. Now you have the key. And people tend to look at their characters and say, okay, what spell do I use for this? Um, uh, How do I attack with this? And that's not how you play. (laughs) Just get into the moment and and do what comes to you um, by impulse, not by looking at lists. So uh, Grimslade started to do odd things, including be obstinate. Everybody camped out in this dungeon. I got bored. I got up in the middle of the night. I was the guard. I, while they are sleeping, I wandered away. <laughs> I'm going down the corridor and opening doors, and I kick open the door, and there's these goblins. So you're that guy. Yeah, you're and they all look up and go, what the heck? And they start chasing us. And I come running back to the ground shouting, goblins, everybody wake up, goblins. And I dive into the circle behind them. And then they fight the goblins for me. And it was a total party. Yeah. It was like, like, okay. So I started, uh, as I say, I would get bored. And I started saying, well, I'll invent things. So every time we encountered a scavenger, like a ochre jelly or a green slime or gray ooze, black pudding, I would try and get a section of it that I could take back with me. I carried pots that I could seal up and, and take home, put these things in aquariums and feed them. And then I was making grenades of gray ooze and green slime and stuff. 
I knew there was dangers in this, but I thought it was neat. They got bored with me at one point. I wanted an okra jelly, and uh, and I said, don't hurt it, don't hurt it, and they torched it. Hmm. And I said, you fools, I needed a piece of that okra jelly. So they walked up to the chart, they cut off a piece and said, here's your piece. So I, I started inventing, and when I got through the inventing part of it, I thought, well, maybe I can invent stories. If the DM is boring, this is a collaborative thing. What if I help him have stories that are more interesting? So that's what I did with Grimslade. I started to conceive stories. Uh, one character, I said, okay, he almost, I, I made a deal with the local thieves guild. Um, and he, this guy, he was, uh, okay. I'm trying to think he's a warrior. He almost gets run down by a lady and her entourage on a horse in the town. And, uh, later the, uh, guard comes back and says, you have affronted my lady and, uh, you need, she needs her honor back and you will meet me on the field of battle. And, uh, if you're a man of honor, you will show up on time and there. So then I arranged for him to be delayed getting to the battle, and he came too late, and it was and the guy was gone. He went, I don't know what to do. And then I had uh, the Thieves Guild deliver him a, a white feather. And he's asking the bartender, who happens to be the head of the Thieves Guild, he just doesn't know it, uh, what the white feather means. And then he says, Oh, it means whoever's the recipient is a coward and that uh, no honors do this man and uh, anything and any uh, ways to uh, clear the mar, the insult is now permissible up to it, including his assassination. And the guy was like terrified. And that's the end of the stunt. Well, not quite. I would wander around invisible and when i saw opportunities i would like release the brake on a cart on a hill and this cart would roll down at him in no danger i'd knock a flower pot off of a, a windowsill overhead so it crashed to the ground just wanted to build the paranoia for him he, so he's the wizard in the market who just tortures people that's right yeah and uh, i did i had a dwarf who i had uh, receive a letter from uh, this dwarven princess and how she admired him and had heard of his tales and they started corresponding. And my guys taking the messages back and forth and what I was really doing in the meantime was trying to find out where the dwarf uh, princess was, what her real name was and uh, saying, you need to rescue me. My father has found out about us. And because you're not of noble blood, you know, my love, you have to come and rescue me. So it strikes me as, as the DM is either loving this as this is a collaborative effort. I love it. Let's go with the flow. Or I can't believe that Grimsdale did it again. I spent three weeks writing this dungeon and Grimsdale goes off and does something else. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I, I, I even found a way to get a cheat on the uh, treasure uh, I created a persona. I had done a couple things. I made, I went out and created big Chinese finger traps 
and uh, went to an area where I had heard there'd be pixies. And I put gold in the finger traps. And I caught a pixie reaching in, uh, invisible, got his arm caught. And I made a deal to free him. And it was a great deal. It was, I will set you up a merchant route. We will provide you with weapons, armor, whatever the pixies need. Um, and I only want the one thing in return. What, gold, silver, gems? No. I want your companionship. I want you to become one with me. And so he had Megira. He, he would fly around or sit on my shoulder invisible. Um, so I had a, a pixie uh, ally. And so I created a character called Edelsmerg, which is Grimslade backwards. And Edelsmerg uh, contacts the other mage in the group and offers to be his patron. And that he will offer to make him, you know, wizards can't wear armor. I will make him magical armor. And in return, he will uh, let me know what adventures he's going on. I will tell him what I'm looking for. And he will bring me with that. And uh, from his share of the treasure, I will get uh, to pick one of the magic items uh, as part of my payment uh, for being his patron. So I was getting part of his treasure. And and I wasn't going to scam him. I was going to research and see if I couldn't actually create magical armor for him um, or find it. And uh, when he met with me, we met in a darkened room. I had a hood on. I had gotten a water, a, a globe of phosphorescing water. When he, he shook it, it would glow. So I had Magira standing on my shoulder with this cloak doing this in the air. <laughs> like it was actually floating in the air. And uh, then uh, in the, I conceived that if you're in a magical society, when you sign a contract, there's got to be consequences. So it's a magical contract. It's binding. So I got him to sign it, and I signed it Edelsmerg. So it was me, Grimslade. Um, which is why the name is Edelsberg. And yes, for a while, the DM thought this was wonderful. But I wasn't always there when they played. And I had my own place, uh, me and Fido. You, you've seen Fido. You didn't refer to Fido there, who's kind of half Tasmanian devil um, and uh, half Umber Hulk. We don't know what he was. I went to the local market to buy a watchdog and that's what the referee offered me and i thought okay what the heck <laughs> i'm a mage i should have a unique creature he didn't train well i well, put my i put my platinum in his uh bed like a dog bed to hide because who's going to go against uh, this thing he ate my platinum mm. he chewed it up like this thing can chew up metal yeah Okay, I had a rat problem, so I was poisoning rats. So I didn't have food for him, so I threw the rats at him, and he ate them and didn't suffer any bad effects. So I then found out Fido was uh, immune to poison. And I, well, that's kind of neat. Anyway, so when I wasn't there, he was supposed to just leave me in the room, and he actually decided he was going to run me. Um, and he had me doing this, annoying the guy with the telekinetic ring. Um, and then they found me 
sitting in a bar. They and the referee is prompting them to realize that Edelsmerg is Grimslade backwards. And so they trap me in the bar and I feign like I'm coming out of a spell. Um, so then they hypnotize me and make me, we were playing in the uh, city state of the uh, overlord from uh, judges guild. Oh yeah. And go to see the overlord and confess all my sins. Um, and one, I never would have put myself in a place where I could have gotten caught. I had invisibility, right? Um, second, I wouldn't have uh, admitted anything even under hypnosis. And third, that's not how that ability works. No, you've got it absolutely wrong. But because I wasn't there, he said my character did all this. He doesn't have me take over till I'm kneeling in front of the overlord. And he says, so he sees I'm really pissed. He says, okay. Um, he raises the uh, gaius off of me and says, okay, I will give you a reward just to, you know, mollify you. And I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Kill me. What? Kill Grimsley. I'm not going to do that, Harold, says Glenn. I said, why? He says, you said anything. And he says, no. I said, okay, fine. Here's what I want you to do. Is there a war going on? Yes. Send Grimslade off to be posted at the war front. And then strip my uh, place of residence of any evidence that I ever was there. And now everybody in the city, if my fellow players come around looking for me, they don't know who Grimslade is. They've never heard of him. They're imagining this. There is no such person as Grimslade. You tell them that. And I also, the second ring I had was a ring of delusion. So I left that behind for them to find and play with and be deluded by something. And I just vanished into the atmosphere. What happened? But you went off to the war front. I did. Uh, later on in uh, England, uh, when we did the first Gen Con UK, uh, somebody did a tournament and Jim Ward had his character. I had Grim Slade. And, and Fido, and uh, we woke up naked on these tables, uh, stone tables, and Grimslade and everybody, er, anything that we do uh, tends to come true. And we're going, what's going on? And I'm sort of tumbling to it, but I'm not. I just realized that whatever we say is true. So when people come up to me and say, you look like Grimslade. You're Grimslade. I say, no, I hear Grimslade died in the wars to the north. And by the end of the adventure, there's this girl who supposedly was in love with Grimslade that, of course, I don't remember. And there's a grave. And the Grimslade really is there. Turns out that we were all clones and we had been clones. So if our characters went off on this adventure to slay this dragon and died, that we would, you know, be reborn as the clones. But if the clone comes to life while the actual character is still alive, he goes insane. So all of us were considered to be insane, except for me, because I killed myself. So I was the only character in this entire tournament who actually was sane. 
Jim Ward, uh, he, uh, he came, was looking for a weapon, so he broke this door down, and then he, he carried the door around and killed goblins with the door, and, so on. and they proclaimed him the doorman, and everywhere he went, he was called the doorman, and when he went to the town where we all congregated, he, we had always been there before. We had been back from this battle with the dragon, and we don't remember going to fighting the dragon. And Jim Ward's house is all made up of all these doors that he's torn off during adventures. So, yeah, Grimslade was there. Grimslade died in the wars to the north. But his clone's alive. So Grimslade's really alive. Got it. All right. Very good. Well, thank you. Thank you for all, all that backstory on Grimslade. So, James, anything else from our... Yeah, I know. And we're, we're, we've... We really appreciate how all the time you've spent with us today. This is this is a, really a great time. Our fans, our listeners are super uh, excited. You know, obviously you've had a long career at TSR. Did you? So, what is the edition that you play, or what's what is your edition when you think of D and D? Do you have? I I, I, per, I play a variant of first edition. It's very easy to explain to people um, it, because it's it's based on. Uh, two things. One is the chart. So Thaco, uh, which is not really a true representation of the charts, but we use Thaco. Um, I do the characters uh, roll up. Um, we tended to roll, and you would um, whatever you got is what you got. If you had a low intelligence, you played a low intelligence. Um, but in the game one of the variants that we play is something that the players recommended, which was ability scores were only used as indexes to determine if you could be a rogue or a paladin or, you know, a wizard. And the players suggested that the ability score should be more than that. And in the game, there's a lot of things there aren't rules for. So there became ability checks and, when you roll in combat, you're trying to roll that number or above on a 20-sided die, that number or above. But in the case of an ability score, as you go up in ability, you need to have better chances. So in the case of an ability score in AD&D first edition variant, you're trying to roll that number or below. Okay, to succeed, you want that number or below. And I will then give you a modifier, and you add it to the roll doesn't change your abilities, doesn't it change your score, just changes the result of the die roll. So I'll tell you, in the case of um, you're trying to search for something, okay, that's observation. Observation, in my mind, is intellect, intelligence. So I'm going to have you make an intelligence check. I know it's hard to find, so I'm going to tell you, roll the dice, add four. Now, you want that number below, so adding four is going to make it harder to get that number. Um, so that's how I play D&D, and I usually explain it that way. At the start of every tournament I run is we do first edition. First edition is much more freeform and open. Um, I have taken stuff from second because that did happen on my watch. Uh, third edition is not D&D at all, as you know. It's more uh, basic role-playing from um, uh, Chaosium. Basic role-playing, West Coast role-playing uh, was uh, skill-based, while D&D &D was not. 
Um, so when they rewrote it, it became skill-based. And I'm okay. I played third edition. I played 3.5. Uh, fourth edition, of course, became more combat-oriented. And uh, fifth edition, <clears throat> I love the writing quality of fifth edition. Uh, I find it a lot easier to understand. Certainly, we have 40 years, 50 years of rewriting and writing and figuring out how to communicate to uh, players. But um, I don't, I think death is something that should be embraced in these adventures. You're writing them a legend. You're creating a legend. Yes, it should be okay that your character dies. Um, there's the ability to bring them back to life, but why? You know, you have a full story now. And we were talking earlier, one of the great things about Dungeons and Dragons and role playing is that no matter what we write, your adventure is going to be unique to you and your friends who are playing with you. Nobody else will have that adventure. Oh, sure. They may encounter the boggle or the cloaker, but they'll have done different things. They'll have different results. And then what happens? You want, you had such an amazing story. You want to share it. And any role player is known as a storyteller because we'll sit there and tell you, and then my character did this. Right. And, and I, I shot and I rolled a natural 20. Will you believe that? I had no hope of anything, but I rolled a natural 20. And this is what the DM had me do as a result of that. And it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we want to do. We're here to entertain. That's 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 perfect. So, um, thank you for your time today. We have a tradition for our guests. To, speaking of random, we roll a d10 to uh, see how well this show was. One one being uh, horrific, we shouldn't have wasted your time. To ten being epic. So, if you have a d10 available, if you'd like to roll a d10 to see how the show went, we would love for you to do that. Um. Can you give me a moment? Sure. sure. I do have the D10. I just got you. Know, it. Uh, we, knew, we knew you had one. Zeb, Zeb Cook uses a book. He just opens it up in the last number. I think what he used a Thai cookbook. Yeah, so he used a Thai cookbook. But yes, but if he's got dice, we, we're, we, we're ready for that. So There's the player's handbook in the back. Look, and it's got writing. It's an older one, isn't it? Do you see that back yeah, there? Yeah, I see it back there. Yeah, so that's really yeah. old too. On the bottom, right? Yeah, that's that's. Pretty old. Yeah, that's super old. So, Harold, before you roll, you mentioned your picture behind you, and we also saw that old school player's handbook. Can you talk about both of them behind you? Oh, the ones behind me? Because it's got old player's school. handbook, and it's different from yeah, yours, mine. Yours is really old school. Yeah. Okay. My, I, I, I had, uh, I, I bought, actually, my monster manual originally. My first monster manual is gone. Because uh, as a young man, I would read it whenever I could. And that included in the tub. Mm. So you can imagine what happened to my monster manual. It fell in the tub. Oh. Uh, but I tried it out. And all the sheets were warped and everything. And then, like uh, you, Daniel, I, I tended to ride the L in downtown Chicago. And I lost it on the seat. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Will it ever return? No, it'll never return. But did it's you fate your unlearned. Black with a little clicker gun with the little black tape. Did you do that? Like that. 
That's what you're supposed to do. So get returned. No, I didn't. No, what I do, I don't know if you can see it. Is I write property. That's apparel. it. <laughs> Apparently, that didn't work. But you need to put the address. And, and I do it. I do it in pencil so that um, it can be erased and it won't uh, spill. This is this is official Gary Con. Oh yes. We- <laughs> Real quick, I know we don't have a lot of time yet. So uh, on a scale of, uh, of talking of one before you roll that. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being awesome, 1 being terrible, could you please give us a rating for Unearthed Arcana? Oh. um, The book that shall not be named, as we call it. So, um, (laughs) We'll say a 7.1. Oh, that's... There are some some things I'm very impressed with. And when Unearthed Arcana was being done, um, it's... Spawned a lot of discussion between myself and Zeb Cook, um, Steve Winter, uh, as to what the rules should have included and what he did wrong. We're not incredibly happy with Cavaliers and various other uh, creations. I'm I'm very much in favor of you create your own personality. Uh, you don't need to be dragonborn or tiefling or something. In my world, people say, well, I want to be an elf. Um, well, go a thousand miles that way to the island off the coast. That's where the elves are because I don't have elves here. Really? Yeah. I don't need supermen. I want each of you to be adding to the team. You know, the elf can be a fighter, a mage, a, a thief all in one, and he doesn't need anybody else. d and is about being a team. So they said, say, I want to be a halfling. And I say, okay, here's what you do. Roll the dice. And if you get 100 out of 100, then I will determine what other race you are. Because who writes history? Men. Because uh, humans. Because they're short-lived. Elves don't care. And dwarves are long-winded. Uh, and very dour. So, you know, if you want to talk about history and adventure, it's humans, maybe humans with spirit blood or what have you. So there are things I like about it, but there's things I don't like about it. Well, Andy, the removing of the level limits it makes people encourages people to be demi humans and not you but that that's a whole that yeah. that's a whole other conversation probably <laughs> yeah well you know we it, something we haven't talked about is uh and somebody wrote this down bx which is basic expert and then b e n m b e c b e c m i yeah yeah b e c m i um when Frank was rewriting Dungeons and Dragons, the box sets, and he came to Immortals, he didn't initially know where he was going to go. And in my discussion with him, I thought we had the perfect answer, but he did not go that way. He decided instead to go with a game without rules. I felt that what we should do is what early MUDs did. In an early uh, multi-level uh, dungeon, what you would do is you would play till you could start adding to the story itself. And eventually, you became a story writer. 
I thought that's what should happen is when you got up to 30th level, you retire your character and you become a DM hmm. and you create your own world. And now you're a DM so that we have evolved the player into being a storyteller for other people, which we didn't do. So I, there's a lot of things when we talk second edition, I would have gone different ways. We, we don't yeah. talk. We don't talk second edition. I know, but I, I, I when it came up, I, I know. Was, what, what would I have done if I was trying to fix some of the holes in uh, D&D? And I had some concepts, but we didn't go that way. So. I know, but we had Zeb Cook on, and, 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 and we just asked about first edition. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, as I say, I played first edition. That's right. That's what we do. All right. All right. I, ready? Yeah, roll Are the D10. And the die, it's right here. There it looks go. like an old die. Yeah, we trust you. We trust you. <laughs> okay. On the honor system. Oh. Well, this looks like the highest rating to me, the way it's, it, it's on the board here. That's possible. It's infinity. Infinity, wow. We, that, is, that is our highest rating we've ever had. Never had that. That's amazing. So thank you. I can't. No, you see that? There, no, okay. I got it. There you go. Infinity. Eight. That's Infinity. right. But, but like I just way I landed. That's the way I could read it. That's right. Perfect. So there you go. That's that's how good it was. Well, it was um, indeed. So thank you for this. So Harold, if people want to reach out to you to see what you're working on, Facebook, is that the best place to reach you? Facebook, Wisconsin Johnson. Nobody even asked about that. Why is Wisconsin Johnson? Well, why, why is it Wisconsin, Wisconsin Johnson? Well, uh, the hat, obviously. <laughs> um, a lot of people would call me uh, Dr. Jones or Indiana. Somebody at one point uh, said to me, Indiana. And I said, I'm not from Indiana. I'm from Wisconsin. And they went, oh, Wisconsin Johnson. Ah. And I thought, well, that's clever. And it deals with the hat. And then a famous book author named Gene Raby said to me, Harold, when you create a website or a Facebook, you want to do something that's easy to remember. If they lose their notes, it's got to be something that will be easy to remember as a name. And I said, oh, that's easy. It's Wisconsin Johnson. But you were born in Nebraska, right? Did you say or not? No, I was born in uh, Chicago. So Chicago. I'm a Chicago. Okay. Yeah. I'm a flatlander where I was. I've been 40 years up here. I've I, I, I left that tape behind. And, and are any, any current projects, recent products, I know uh, that you'd like to, uh, to mention? Oh, sure. Um, I have them somewhere. Let me show you. Okay, so, of course, there's Returns to Tomalachan, or Tomalachan. Um, this has uh, 200 are available. We're... We've crossed 109 in the sales. It's like $25. It's three books. Um, this is actually uh, co-written. I, I designed it all, and then uh, an author said, I'll write it for you. And then I tore it apart and said, no, this and this. Uh, inside, there is a wilderness map. If I can find it. Can you see the wilderness map? So right now... I am writing a series of short adventures here called Into the Jungle, which is from the shore to where Tomochin is. Um, and uh, that 
is in a format that looks like this. Oh, he's showing us stuff. That's in a format that looks like this. This is a small book. Um, we did a, a product called um, uh, Caladar, I think, which is a city. It's a $40 book. But it, it's basically, you know, detailed maps and who runs the shop and that sort of thing. But there were no adventures. And I said, we should do adventures. So we were at RockCon, um, and that takes place in Rockford, uh, Illinois, every year, except for the last year. And uh, while we were there, one night after the show, I said, we should create some short adventures to take place in the city. And he said, well, those are hard to do. I said, nonsense, take notes. And I started pacing. When I create, I have to be in motion. So I started pacing and I, I came up with 18 stories from two o'clock to four o'clock. This has 15 of them because he wouldn't let me do them all besides <laughs> constraints. But uh, there's a great one in here called bodyguards, which guess what you do? You're guarding a body. Yep, that's absolutely correct. Um, they, it has a theme. We're working with uh, uh, Rob Kunst who, and Terry Kunst. Terry's the creator of the Beholder. So we have a Beholder theme throughout these stories. But the concept of doing short adventures, uh, you, you'd like what I've got. I've got one called Grandfather, which is the... Uh, most ancient of all crocodiles in the swamps. Um, I have the flayed woods. You go in and all the bark is off the trees and you go, what the hell is this place? I have packs or a peaceful place and you go in there and you find that the lion is laying down with the lamb and they're not fighting because if they do, the lamb doesn't like it. But it's a good place you can recover in. So and these are just tales off the top of my head. So that we talked about this, that I am trying to design something based on this. You, you probably can't see this, but it's actually a three-dimensional right. fold-up ruin that you make. And I am doing a, a role-playing board game. Uh, that starts out with this so that there was a role-playing adventure oh. till the temple. But I'm making it so that you can cut the pages apart into cards, and now you can randomize it. So it plays many different ways, gotcha. many different times. Um, I am working on a project called Curious. Um, I know an artist, a local artist, who is a modern artist. And he came to me and said, we should do a project together. And I said, you know, well, I did this Ravenloft product, and it was designed to be uh, like Ravenloft, uh, multiple directions that the story could go based on a selection that you made. And there's this dining room with these various knickknacks around, and you get to pick one, and a story is told around that, and it changes the rest of the adventure. Um, it, well, I only those shorts, uh, which is a one-page story. So the artist said, you write the stories and I'll illustrate. I'll do one picture. So I said, 
the concept is I only have one page to tell the story in, and he will then illustrate it with one page. There'll be 13 stories in the product called Curious, as in Curios, Curious. But when I started designing it, my mind doesn't stop. So far, I have 39 stories. So it's uh, the first one will be called Curious. The second one will be called Curiouser. And the third one will be called Curiouser and Curiouser. And the collection will be called Curiosities. Very nice. good. Excellent. So that's what we're working on. That's great. Sounds great. Well, so right. people go out to, so, yeah, Johnson go to Facebook. Go to Facebook. Wisconsin Johnson. Wisconsin Johnson, Facebook. So feel free. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. So, again, thank you. Well, uh, uh, let, me, let me do that uh, merciless plug. Sure. My uh, company is called Epic Quest Productions. And you can go online there. Epic Quest Productions? Is it an own website? Epic, or? Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's an actual working website out there. We It was Epic Quest that I did a um, virtual uh, convention with. And I had people from uh, Italy, Germany, England. Wow, the, the guy from Australia must have been the same guy. He didn't make it, mm. he fell asleep. But uh, yeah, we were all over. There's Nevada, New Mexico, had lots of different attendees. Well, thank you again, Howard, for your time. It was really awesome. We really appreciate it. And for those, again, go out to Wisconsin Johnson Facebook, Epic Quest Productions. So on behalf of Grog Talk, I'm James. And I'm Dan. And we will see you next time on Grog Talk. Take care. This is big, a pushy, a big production. All rights reserved.